The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to a very special episode of Wizards. Now, normally, we're the podcast that re-examines the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine, but this time around, we found ourselves blasted forward in time to the 21st century with more than just the words on the page to guide our discussion. That's right, we're bringing you the inside scoop on your favorite comics magazine from a real live Wizard staff member who lived the dream as a contributor to our beloved Guide to comics we're excited to welcome to the podcast the mighty ben morse welcome ben hey guys thanks so much for having me on this is a trip it's been years since i've talked about wizard with anyone who wasn't there and i'm just thrilled that this show exists and people still remember what we were doing back in the day yeah i mean it's so influential for so many comics fans and the words that you've written and the things that have transpired in the years since wizard was at its peak and so we're, we're excited to get your perspective on your time there but you know as we get started here the the first thing we'd probably like to understand is just briefly how did comics enter your life in such a way that it became enough of an obsession that you could parlay it into a career as a comics journalist Sure, yeah. It all probably started for me late 80s, early 90s. Um, I was definitely a superhero kid from the minute I could identify superheroes. Anything that looked cool, I loved. I loved Flash. I loved Iron Man. So I was, was very into red and yellow motifs. But um, <laughs> probably the turning point was 1992. Like so many other people, when X-Men the Animated Series came on the air, that was really like my gateway to, oh my God, I love this stuff so much and um, ended up becoming a rabid fan of the comics. And, and what I always like to say is that, you know, after, back in 1992, if you enjoyed the X-Men cartoon, you were naturally going to go to your comic shop because you wanted more and you were only getting that once a week on Saturdays and, you know, not during the summer. Today, if you like a comic book movie, you can probably find comic book multimedia and superhero multimedia to kind of fill your day for however much you need you know there's movies there's tv there's toys there's video games but it was a little scarcer back in 92 so i ended up diving pretty heavily into comics stayed in comics for the next several years through high school through college and then as i was getting ready to graduate college i didn't really know what i was going to do with my life i knew i wanted to do something with journalism but traditional journalism wasn't really for me i, I did an internship at my local newspaper and i hated it <laughs> um, so I was like, I was like, what am I going to do? This is what I wanted to do. And it was actually a fateful lunch with my dad. And I said, dad, I don't know what I'm going to do once I graduate. And he said, well, you really love comic books. That's kind of like one of your your big passions and you love writing about them. Why don't you try to make that into a career? And so I ended up paying my own way summer of 2004, go to San Diego Comic-Con, stay in a cheap motel about 40 minutes away from the convention center. And all I did the whole time I was there was just try to meet people who I thought could get me some sort of job in comics. And I had a fortunate connection in that uh, I had linked up with Jeff Johns, known today pretty well as, as one of the masterminds behind DC Comics. At the time, he was he was writing Flash and Teen Titans. And he noticed some work I did on the website I wrote for and was one of the people who encouraged me to come out to San Diego and introduced me to a lot of people while I was there. Two of the guys I met were Mike Cotton and Andy Serwin from Wizard, and I just would not leave them alone 
all week. I basically followed them around. I went to the wizard panel. Uh, I located them wherever they were. They were so sick of me by the end of the convention that I think just to kind of get rid of me, they said, all right, all right, we'll tell our boss about you and he'll uh, hopefully call you for an interview. So <laughs> that goes from the origin right all, all the way up to wizard. I don't know if I went too far there. I mean, you get Jeff Johns in the mix. Michael's ears perk up immediately. <laughs> They they sure did. I was like, whoa, hey now, this is getting good here. <laughs> but like, that's the funny thing is back then it's probably you know you could have done a little bit networking easier than nowadays. It's it's a little bit more challenging to do that kind of networking and getting in somebody's ear like that, which is which is pretty amazing. I'm I'm, I'm very impressed by that move. It would, dude. It was it was it was a lot of luck. It was really that I had written for a couple websites, both of which are still around, but I don't know if there's so much comics focused anymore. Uh, one was 411 Mania, and the other one was Inside Pulse, which eventually became Comics Nexus. And literally, I just published a positive review of a Flash comic, and Jeff was just, I don't know, like scanning the nascent comics internet for uh, reviews of Flash, and happened to drop me an email, and for me, it was like, this is my favorite writer I cannot believe the guy who's writing Flash is emailing me and said to me, you know, if you ever want to do anything creatively, reach out to me. And I was like, are you kidding me? And then I was still at college at the time. So I gave him my, my home number and he called my house and my mom called me and said, hey, someone named Jeff just called you. And I tried to explain to my mom what a big deal this was. And she just like did not. She's like, all right, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <And I'm> like, <laughs> I said I said to my mom to try to quantify it. I said, Mom, you know, you grew up in the 60s. This is basically the equivalent of one of the Beatles called your house and wanted to talk to you. So, yeah, I was off to the races from there. So the moral of the story is flattery will get you everywhere. Pretty much. Yep. <laughs> say, nice, say nice things about people and they'll want to do favors for you. Absolutely. <laughs> so this is the question I have just jumping back in time just a little bit. What sure. was your first exposure to Wizard? How deep were you into the magazine itself for that to become an option in your mind oh man so with wizard it was a case of when i was a kid in the 90s it, it was everything as you guys have covered on this very show for someone who enjoyed comic books to then find out there's a whole hundred page magazine that's just articles about comics and art and jokes and previews like that was incredible because comic book fans especially when you're a kid you're like a drug addict you want to get your hands on as much as possible so to go from the tv show to the comics to hold on, there's this whole thing that every month I can buy it and it takes me like a whole week to read through everything. Amazing. And then I fell off a little bit probably in like the late 90s when I was in high school. I was still collecting comics, but not as much. When I got to college, I went to, I'm, I'm, I'm from Boston. I went to college in Connecticut. There was this great door called Sarge's Comics right down the street from Connecticut College where I went to school. And I felt like I had missed like two or three years of comics. And I, I wanted to like just drop a huge amount of knowledge back on my brain. So I bought as many as I could. But Wizard was a huge part of that. I was like, all right, well, Wizard, I know, is like it's it's like it's like the phone book. So if I want to get back into comics and I've been removed for a couple of years, Wizard's going to be the, the place I want to go. And I read it insanely throughout all of college. And then it was Jeff Johns who suggested the the wizard route, though, because he was really friendly with the dudes at Wizard. He was good buddies with Mike and Andy, who I met. He was a. Uh, really close with Pat McCallum, who was the editor-in-chief and who had been the editor-in-chief dating back to the 90s. And when I said to him, like, yeah, I want to get a job in comics, but I don't know what. I don't want to write comics. I don't want to draw comics. I just want to be involved with comics. And he said, well, you've got a, you've got a journalism background. Wizard would make sense. And I said, that would be an absolute dream. 
to be working at the thing that I read so intently both as a kid and as an adult. Awesome. So here's the question then. So as you got into that, you said, you know, they were going to talk to their boss. And mm-hmm. so who, who were the, the head honchos at this time? And what was the vetting process for you? How qualified did you feel? And how did they determine <laughs> if you were what they needed? So I know that my name went from Jeff to Mel Kylo, who was the first person who got in touch with me. And then Mel gave my name to Pat and to Joe Yanarella. And Joe was the guy who officially kind of contacted me. Mel had reached out and said like, hey, I got your name from Jeff. I'm trying to kind of put you through the process. We, we appreciate that you're a fan and we're going we're gonna to see what we can do. Joe was the guy who reached out to me. And the thing about Joe Yanarella was... Joe was the very necessary guy at Wizard who was not a comic book fan. It's like, you guys know, obviously, the origins of Wizard is started by Gareth and Pat and Brian Cunningham, these guys who were, comics was their life. And at some point, they brought in Joe, who was like a legitimate, credible journalist, to basically be like, we need you to keep us honest. So Joe had like a serious, like hard news background and really like knew his stuff. Not that these other guys didn't, but at the end of the day, they were still, you know, they were they were doing the thing they loved to do as a kid. For Joe, this was a job. And that was important because he was kind of the guy who would hire people and determine if you were valuable to Wizard. Because if the other guys were doing the hiring, if you just went in and you could name all the X-Men, you're hired, right? (laughs) So, like, that's not necessarily the best way of screening people. So if you could get in good with Brian and Pat by being a fan, that was, like, halfway there. But then Joe would be the one who would actually, like, give you a writing test and, like look at your your samples to make sure you could actually string a sentence together. So it was like a combination of comic book fandom got me definitely in the door. But then you had to like, I you know, I had an English degree and I'd been editor in chief of my school newspaper. So I knew comics, but I also I could write. And, and a lot of the guys there from my era were your hardcore comic book fans like me. But there were also these guys like like Richard Ho, who was one of the first people to show me. I was the staff writer when I got there, like he graduated from Harvard and was working there. So that wow. was legit. And then Shanti Collins, who was one of the editors, uh, who was also an amazing writer, he graduated from Yale. So that was funny, too, because we had the Yale guy and the Harvard guy. <laughs> And like they had the, of course, the little rivalry, but I think we more put it out. Did they walk around the office with their little pennant flags? <laughs> I think we made them do it for like goofy photo shoots and stuff, but no, <laughs> not normally. But we're like, yeah, get dressed up. But long story short, Joe was the guy you really had to impress to get a job at Wizard. And so was this position where you would actually have to move to New York, work in the Wizard offices, or were you a freelance contributor through the internet? Like how was this work being submitted? What was the position once it was offered to you? This was 2004, so Wizard was not even really on the internet at this point. That was actually one of the one of the things that I said in my first job interview when they asked me if I had any questions. I was like, "What are you guys doing about your website?" And they're kind of like, "Oh, we're working on it." And I was like, "Well, better get going." So, and I, and I was actually surprised I still got hired because that was kind of an obnoxious answer. <laughs> but no, I was brought in as a my official position when I came in was I was a research assistant. So I worked for Dan Riley, who was another wizard original who had been there the whole time he ran the research department dan was the hardest working dude at wizard he was there from open to close and basically we were putting a magazine together and obviously it's a print magazine dan was responsible for every image that went into the magazine so if you needed a picture of superman done by a particular artist 
you could Google it, but you couldn't just grab anything at that point. So it was kind of like we had a physical comic book library upstairs that you would go through and find something or Dan would find it on the Internet. But I was brought in as a research assistant with the idea that I would be doing writing on the side. So I was a freelance contributor, but I was in the physical New York office. I was basically like my day job was I was doing research. I was finding pictures. I was looking up anything they wanted me to look up. But then when I would go home, then I had like a tiny apartment in the same complex as another research assistant, Dylan Brucey. And I would go back to my apartment and basically uh, Dylan was in the same boat. Like all the guys working research were in the same boat where we would we would research during the day and then we'd go home at night and like write, you know, a, a column for the price guide or we'd write uh, a small article if you proved yourself enough and i was fortunate that because i had the jeff johns endorsement i got opportunities really quickly because they were like oh you're jeff's buddy so if we're doing an article on jeff we're gonna have you call him because he wants to talk to you and the other thing was when i first moved in they didn't have room in the research office for me and one of the staff writers had just left so they put me in the staff writer office with mike cotton and rich ho but I wasn't a staff writer. I was a research assistant. So it was this weird thing where, you know, they were having their meetings all during the day. And I was kind of like, I got to pick their brains on writing articles and doing interviews and all this stuff. But at the same time, when when Mike would remember, like, he needed a picture of Wolverine, he'd be like, Ben, go run up to the library and get me a picture of Wolverine. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Back to Earth, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I do remember uh, very distinctly my very first day on the job in 2004, I got my like research orientation and they're like, all right, we're going to have you write a news story announcing something. And what it was, was this is 2004. So the countdown, not the comic series, but the one shot had been announced. And I got to do the story on what it was officially named, which was Countdown to Infinite Crisis. So I basically got to do a story about Infinite Crisis, which was written by Jeff and drawn by Phil Jimenez, who was another buddy. And then I spoke to Dan DiDio my first day, which was incredibly intimidating. And then throughout that week, talked to all the people who were doing the the tie-in miniseries for Infinite Crisis, like the lead into Infinite Crisis. So like Greg Rucka and Gail Simone and like everyone who was writing on those. So I, by the end of my first week, I had written a story about the sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earth. So I was like, all right, well, here we go. <laughs> Funny enough, Infinite Crisis was one of the books, because I had had a hiatus from comics for couple of years mostly because of girls and you know mm-hmm. the I know normal i know that yeah. story brother. <laughs> and uh it was believe it or not it was um identity crisis crisis of conscience and infinite crisis that got me back into comics at that time a funny story at that i had number one i had the i had the crappiest apartment like when i started at wizard which i was like this is your first job out of college you're supposed to have like a terrible but dylan who's my buddy was like yeah there's there's an apartment in the place next to me like you should you should grab it and i was like all right fantastic because it was month to month so that was huge that you could you could get month to month rent on this but it was literally new york city, like yeah. well, no it wasn't no it wasn't new york city because that's the thing wizard wasn't in new york city okay. wizard wizard was in like upstate new york they didn't move to new york city after i was gone actually really um, yeah, I think that's a common misconception is that a lot of people thought that Wizard was in New York City, but it was in this tiny little town called Congers, which is about an hour and a half north of New York City. So the moral of the story is it's really hard still to find places to live because this place was so small. It was in it was this warehouse in the middle of nowhere. I had a rental car one time and I drove to the Wizard warehouse and I had GPS on it and it told me to turn around. <laughs> it was so 
I mean, that should have been a sign. Ben, earlier you mentioned that your original job was a research assistant. Very yes. curious. What can you tell us about the Wizard comic book archives during those days? Like, how was it set up? What was the sorting process like? So it was, to me especially, as like a 22-year-old kid who was a rabid comics fan, it was like Nirvana. It was awesome. But it was super disorganized. Well, it was organized, but it wasn't like pristine. Does that make sense? Like in the sense that it was all alphabetized, everything was in order. It was basically like imagine the way you probably keep your comics like in your basement or your closet or anywhere else. It just happened to be the size of, you know, a large room. But for me, it was cool because it was a lot of trades um every single issue and a ton of stuff that i just never read before you know because i stopped i stopped reading comics for like all of high school and i mean that's that's just like a four-year chunk but still that was like 1996 to 2000 so there were hundreds of comics for me to catch up on and especially then my my girlfriend was still in college and we were long distance and i had some friends who worked at wizard but you know we all had, had our own lives so i would very often just grab a stack of like you know 50 issues of Birds of Prey that I'd never read and go to the diner in the town where Wizard was situated and just sit there, order dinner and, and, and read. So uh, the library was pretty great. I think the biggest thing as far as organization was that Dan Riley, my first boss, was just like on top of us to keep it organized. So like if you took something out, you had to put it back. But despite that, there were always just boxes and boxes on the floor of comics out of order. And it was the job of the research assistants or the interns when we had interns to go through those and like reorganize all of them. But it, it seemed like it was a never ending task. So you're saying it was kind of like organized chaos, like me trying to clean up my kids toys. It's <laughs> yeah, it would be a great way to describe it. Imagine having 30 kids, except all your kids are like 20 to 30 something dudes. <laughs> <laughs> so the actual job, like, for example, if they sent you and said, okay, well, you know, we need a picture of North Star from this issue mm -hmm. of Alpha Flight. So you would go up, grab it, and then go scan it for them. Is that kind of how that worked? So the process was, if you're a research assistant, you go up, and again, this was it was 2004, 2005. So the internet, you know, you could find stuff on the internet, but a lot of the guys who, who ran the magazine, Dan, Brian Cunningham, Pat McCallum, those guys, they preferred to have like the physical comics. And then they would oftentimes use the physical comics for reference, see if they could find a digital version. Then if not, then we would potentially hand it. But what, what you did was like the thing that was infamous at Wizard was there were hundreds and hundreds of those little like yellow notepads because we used yellow notepads for everything <laughs> and specifically we had like every size of yellow notepads so you had like the full square they also had like the tiny little rectangles and going back if you took a comic out of the archives it was just like covered in yellow sticky panels saying like here's where north star is here's where guardian is here's where vindicator is it's just like little arrows pointing because once you put a sticky note down there it seems like a waste of paper to go back and like throw the sticky note out so a lot of times we just left them there it was it was all about sticky notes and clipboards because <laughs> you would get a clipboard with like you know how the price guide every cover or panel in the price guide had like a little funny word balloon right. where every character had a little funny word balloon so we would circulate around the entire staff these clipboards that had black and white copies of every page that needed a word balloon and then you would just put a sticky note on with your suggestion so you'd have like 12 sticky notes on one page but it was also like if you were a young 
staffer like I was, especially like before I became a staff writer or anything, getting one of your word balloons in the price guide was like the highest achievement you could have. That's awesome. Now, you know, you talked about it, you know, you got a bunch of 20 to 30 something dudes in there. How would you describe that office environment? Was it very professional or is it the nerd frat house we saw from the other side of the page? It was pretty much what you saw. The stuff you saw was pretty accurate. I remember my parents came one time because they wanted to see where I worked. And first they saw where I lived, which they were disgusted by. But then they saw where I worked and they were just like, oh, my God, it's like your college dorm room multiplied by 30 into a huge office building. But yeah, I mean, we were always having a pretty good time. Like these were your best friends. Like these were the guys you hung out with and you sat around talking about comics all day. But the crazy thing was when we went out to lunch, I mean, this this is going to sound insincere, but literally we would spend all morning having meetings, writing and reading comics. And then we'd go out to like Taco Bell and talk about comics more. That was all we would do. It's all we were into. We were also into like, you know, video games and movies and all sorts of stuff. And of course the topic changed, but seriously, like the people who worked at wizard were people who could carry on a conversation about comic books, 24 hours a day. And when the day let out, sometimes we'd go and play Frisbee. Like we had, that was the nice thing about being in upstate New York, as opposed to New York city was there were parks nearby and we could go out and we could throw the Frisbee around. But then, you know, we'd all go out to lunch together. We'd all go out to dinner together. At the end of the day, we would all play Halo. I was legendarily one of the worst Halo players probably in the history (laughs) of Wizard. And that was like, if my job had depended on my video game skill when I came in, I would have been fired almost immediately because (laughs) I was the worst. Later, when we got a beta version of Marvel Ultimate Alliance, somewhat redeemed myself because i was a lot better at ultimate alliance but uh i used to get, i was the first one dead in every like halo competition i feel you on that one mm-hmm. my friends and i would play online back in the day halo or call of duty i was i was the noob they got blown up within the first two seconds yeah. Yeah, you hear me. You hear me, man. I mean, it was it was frustrating too because when I was younger, I was good at like Goldeneye, so I was like, this should translate. But it was more. I don't think it was that I was. I mean, I was bad, but I don't think it was so much that I was bad. But it was like these guys at Wizard were like next level. This was like what they were training for. So they were amazing. <laughs> now, just building off also your story about your connection to Jeff Johns, getting you to deal with the whole infinite crisis. Yeah. And that led to you basically getting in touch with all the higher ups at DC oh God, Comics. Yeah. And you so you're becoming a staff writer and, and really in your first week of that, just blowing the doors off everything. What were some of your favorite pieces to write or projects to take on after that? Uh, my favorite projects that I took on were right before I came in, they had started doing director's commentaries, which was basically these longer 10 page articles where they take the new hot story, whether it was like New Avengers or House of M or whatever. So I think the first few were like Identity Crisis got one, I'm pretty sure. And it was it was just you would you would do like an hours long interview with the creative team of these stories. And it would be director's commentaries were huge at the time. The idea that you would get a DVD and it would have this track where the directors would like talk over the movie. So the idea was get the writer and the artist and you talk through like, all right, here's a page. Here's a panel. Here's a moment. What did you think? What what was your motivation? What's the story behind this? So I got to do the Green Lantern Rebirth one. That was the first one that I did. And I famously had the creative team of Green Lantern Rebirth on the phone for about four hours. 
and then realized afterwards that I had forgotten to record. <laughs> so literally my first big assignment and I could not have botched it more thoroughly. Luckily, number one, it was Jeff. So he was okay with me screwing it up and gave me another chance. But the other thing that was cool was Peter Tomasi, who's now the writer on Detective Comics, has written some great Batman and Superman stuff, was the editor of Green Lantern. And the first time around, we had not had him on the call. So I came up with the somewhat brilliant idea of, well, let's do it again, but let's have Pete on the call. So that way it'll be a different conversation. And then um, the... Because we that one went fairly well, the Rebirth one went fairly well, I think they asked me, they said, if you could do a director's commentary, we had done a lot of, like I said, current day director's commentaries on stuff that had just come out. But I think, and I apologize if I'm, I'm giving credit to the wrong person here, I think it was Brian Cunningham who said to me, like, because he knew, in addition to like in the current stuff, I was like, I, I was like a encyclopedic fan of like older comics. So he said, if you could do any classic story as a director's commentary what would you want to do and i immediately said i would do the original crisis on infinite earths i want to talk to marv wolfman and george perez new teen titans my favorite comic of all time uh, or at least one of them and that to me crisis is like it's one of my favorite stories ever i remember that i was in college when i read it but it was like a friend's parents gave me a gift certificate for christmas to new england comics and i went into new england comics and i was just like what is the biggest book on the shelf and at the time the biggest one i could find was crisis on infinite earths and i was a total marvel kid so i didn't really know dc at all and i always say to people who tell me like dc continuity is too intimidating i'm always like that's what i love about it I just read Crisis start to finish, no internet, no Wikipedia, and no real knowledge of any of these characters. And to me, it was like every page, every chapter was getting to meet another dozen new characters. And that was awesome to me. So I pitched the idea to do the director's commentary with Marvin George. And that was just like, I mean, doing the Green Lantern one was cool, but doing the Crisis one was like a dream come true. I was like, these guys are the greatest and getting these stories that at this point are like 20 years old, but somehow these guys still remember like why they use the crime syndicate here or pointing out that um, when Lady Quark's world gets destroyed, if you look at the page, everyone except for Lady Quark and her family, it's all midgets. I was just asking a question. I was like, I was like, what was the genesis here? And Marv Wolfman just says like, yeah, George Perez just drew midgets. And George's like, yeah, I just thought it'd be funny. And like, that was it. But like little uh, tidbits like that were the best. I will say the two biggest regrets I have are we did an infinite crisis director's commentary with Jeff and with Phil Jimenez that I can't for the life of me remember why, but I don't think it ever ran. I think it just got cut for space and like somewhere in my apartment and I've since lost them for the longest time because we were using, you know, a standard tape recorder at this time. I had like eight cassettes of me talking to those guys about Infinite Crisis that if I still had them today, I would absolutely like publish them uh, yeah. on, on the web. But I don't know. I lost them years ago, but I never got that. And then the, the other thing, probably the thing that I most regret that never ran because I really loved doing it was William Mesner Loeb's who had written Wonder Woman and Flash and Thor around the time I was a staff writer. It had kind of come out that he had like fallen on hard times and him and his wife had been homeless for a little while. And at this point they were living in like a, like a trailer. And this was like a guy who was 
hugely successful in the 90s. So somehow that story came to me like via message boards or something. And I pitched to my boss that I wanted to go to Michigan where Bill and his wife lived. And I wanted to basically like spend a few days with them and like tell this story of this guy who was like on top of the comics world and then disappeared so thoroughly that he basically found himself homeless for a time. And I went and I, and they, they approved me doing it. They flew me to Michigan. It was one of the few times that I like went on assignment. I typically didn't do that, but I went to Michigan. I spent two or three days with Bill and his wife who are like the sweetest, nicest people ever. And to me, their story was just so crazy. But for whatever reason, it just never trained. Sometimes there was just like, there were these great stories that you would have, but they just wouldn't translate into something that would work in the pages of wizard. And this was one of those times that it broke my heart because I wanted to tell their story. And they they were so optimistic and such lovely people who had been through such hardships and still maintained that incredible attitude that I was like, I really want to tell this story. But unfortunately, sometimes the sad part of journalism is the stories with happy endings don't necessarily get published because it's not what people want to read about so that ended up on the cutting room floor and it it, uh it it really has stuck with me to this day 15 years later that i couldn't get that one over the uh the goal line now this is something else you know so during your time at wizard you know wizard obviously a very influential publication fans and professionals relied on the information in there or as a, a source of promoting themselves so were there ever any like big kerfuffles or things whether it was from a publisher from the readers themselves or just like internal office politics you parked in somebody's space now they're not giving you <laughs> space in the magazine or something you know like what, what kind of comics related drama was coming through the office but we only want to hear about kerfuffles only only kerfuffles (laughs) purely kerfuffles inside the office we got along pretty well certainly there were people who didn't like each other but for the most part you know we had a great job and we're having a great time and there were certainly like arguments like there would literally be like i remember we did the top 100 single issues of all time and sitting in the office deciding that was a bloodbath like people were just going at it like <laughs> just like the arguments you would expect to have these are the arguments you have but suddenly now the the fallout of this argument is what's going to end up in the magazine so suddenly it's it's got higher stakes but constantly arguments with companies why did you put this guy at number 1 on your hot 10 writers list why does this company have three pages of coverage but I don't we came to your convention it, it was a lot of just like politics as far as you know it's a business We had fun making the magazine, but there was also a business aspect to, you know, who are our advertisers, who are the people buying booths at our convention, and we need to make sure that they're happy, but then we need to make sure these other people are happy. So I don't remember any, like, really specific kerfuffles. Um, (laughs) I think a lot of those happened before I got there. Like, I remember they had, like, a war with Frank Miller, I think in like the late nineties or something. Right. He tore an issue of wizard in half. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was before my time. By the time I got there, they were already kind of like past that. I can't remember any like high profile. So, so you weren't boycotted by any publisher at some I don't point. Think so. A lot of that was before my time. I remember like the biggest thing was for a couple years, me and Ricky Purden hosted the fan awards. And there was like the the biggest thing I remember was just like creators no showing the fan awards and like just not (laughs) showing up to like accept their trophy. And I actually remember the funny thing was getting back to Jeff Johns, the year he won Best New Writer, which, again, was before I was there. 
but I guess he didn't, he wasn't at the convention where he was awarded best new writer. So they still had his statue. So at some point I saw that it was like in Pat McCallum's office or something. And I just said, I was like, can I just, can I have that? And they're like, yeah, sure. Why not? It's like, it's just sitting here. He's, he's never going to come get it. <laughs> and so I would periodically just take pictures of the statue in like different places and just send them to Jeff with no context. <laughs> and you just be like, what? How? I, oh, and he'd never remember that I had this or like the circumstances. I would always be like, what is that? Why do you have that? What's going on? So, <laughs> but I wouldn't call that a kerfuffle in the, in the most traditional. Yeah. Sense. No kerfuffle crisis. Did the higher ups ever get really, really angry if something like an online website, like, like comic book resources, like scoop them or something that, that they had a big plan for an, an expose in the magazine and then poof, it appears on the internet before the magazine comes out. There's a lot of times, especially during the time I was there, because again, the internet was on the rise and a lot of guys at wizard weren't used to that type of thing happening because, you know, you had other traditional publishers would be like, if, if, if DC promised you an exclusive, you weren't going to see it show up in a rival magazine because they were all working, you know, a month to two months ahead of time. But suddenly uh, DC gives us something that they say is going to be exclusive to wizard. And we put it as the lead story of our news section, which was a big deal to us that we're giving them that kind of placement. And then we would send the issue out to be printed and that would take several weeks. And during the time that we would send the issue out to be printed, whether it was, you know, the DC nation column, or like you said, CBR, or even, you know, magazines like entertainment, we'd see one of our stories show up there. And it was the type of thing where I think comics companies were starting to figure out how to navigate the landscape of the internet, where you could give a CBR at exclusive news and they could turn it around in one day as opposed to giving it to wizard and having to wait and keep it a secret for another six weeks until it came out. And uh, yeah, that happened more and more frequently. And as someone who worked as a company contact for both DC and Marvel, I definitely was in some very like uncomfortable situations where we were promised something. It showed up on CBR or Newsarama my boss is pissed. The people at Marvel and DC are pissed that we're pissed. And I'm just getting like yelled at on every side. And again, I'm like 23. So I feel like the grownups are all pissed off at me. And it's not a fun place to be at all. Now, we know that Wizard became more than just a magazine, right? You mentioned, you know, the conventions were happening. Yeah. Do you have some favorite convention moments? Because that's really, that's where you got your start, was at a convention. Yeah. So did you ever get to return the favor to help anybody else? Or did you ever just have some fun shenanigans that went on at conventions? I always remembered the fact that, you know, San Diego Comic-Con 2004, people had done nice stuff for me. So I always tried to, if there were fans or people who are aspiring to get into the business or interns, I always tried to, uh, if I could, put in a good word. I remember specifically the one and only Wizard World Boston because I'm from Boston and it was 2005. So I basically, I'd been at Wizard for a year and got to kind of like come home and like stay at my house and, you know, bring my parents to the show and like, that was very cool, just in a, like, I can't believe that this is in my hometown type of thing. It also got, like, announced, like, right after I got my job. So I was, like, looking forward to that for a year. And I remember that um, the big thing there was Eliza Dushku, who played Faith on Buffy, 
is also from Boston. So she was like the big guest and I was a huge Buffy fan and my girlfriend was a huge Buffy fan. So we were, I was interviewing her. I was interviewing Eliza Dishku and we didn't have like security people. So basically to keep fans away, it was just the wizard staff forming like a, a human circle <laughs> around Eliza Dushku. And since my girlfriend was there, she helped out by like being one of the people in the circle. So that was fun. And I remember I went to Wizard World LA one year and we're like flying cross country from New York to Los Angeles. And this was the craziest flight of all time because someone in first class was I believe under the influence and tried to open the door to the plane. Whoa. And as a result, they had to basically like land the plane and wait for this guy to get arrested. And it took like hours. And I also remember that this was also memorable because uh, Bernadette Peters, it's like a Tony winner was in first class. And we all just remember it was this weird combination of this dude like freaking out and trying to get off the plane. And then everyone's like, hey, Bernadette Peters is really upset. And then three hours into what would eventually be like an eight to nine hour flight, I just got incredibly sick. I mean, like I was running a fever. Like I was just like I was sweating. I was burning up. I felt worse than I'd ever felt physically. And we get down to L.A. and I go to my hotel room. I was I was rooming with with Ricky and he's just like, dude, go to sleep. And I just passed out. And for the first two days of the convention, I couldn't go because I was so sick. And I like went to an urgent care and I think I was just like a flu. It was like a freak flu. But my big memory is I two days I felt like crap. And then I woke up the third day and I was fine. Like I was like 100 percent OK. So I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to go. I'm going to go work. And one of the First things I had to do was interview Kristen Bell, who was on Heroes at the time. She had just come off doing Veronica Mars and she was on Heroes. And we had actually done a few interviews. So I had like a good rapport with her. And she just notices that I'm popping like vitamin C tabs like it's my job. And she's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I tell her like how I got crazy sick. And so we do the interview. We did like an on-camera interview. And then the minute we get done, she basically spent like 10 minutes telling me like what I needed to do to take care of myself. So it was like, uh... it's like make sure you're having vitamin C, make sure you're drinking lots of fluids, make sure you're doing this. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I remember that distinctly just because of how that flight man was just cursed. The fact that <laughs> someone tried to open the plane and then like I survived that and then just got like deathly ill was just like I, and i know that's not like a fun convention story but it's the one i remember most of I, I just feel like someday you run into bernadette peters you know you're at a broadway show she's going to see you're like do you remember that flight yeah you almost fell out of like come on man <laughs> Now, obviously, coming in and out of the office, going to conventions, all those things, there's all sorts of comic swag up the yin-yang. Did you ever collect or keep anything for over the years, or, like, specifically, like, wizard memorabilia, something that meant something to you? So, Wizard, the office, was in a building that was about one-third office building, and then the back two-thirds were a giant warehouse and that warehouse was just filled with wizard and comic book memorabilia so basically anything you needed 
from the history of Wizard. Like any issue of Wizard, any like half comic they'd given away, any statue anything was in the warehouse and this warehouse was huge so you could find anything you want but honestly the things that i treasured most were just that and i still have these at my at my parents house in boston is just i have every issue of wizard that i had something in from my first news article to the director's commentaries I was talking about to when Captain America died, I got to do an oral history of Captain America where we talked to like every writer and artist who was still living who had ever been on Captain America. And just those physical copies of the magazine were probably what I treasured the most just because this was like kind of a record of this like incredible two to three years of my my life but also like i would grab the twisted toy fair theater collections and if i were to do it over i probably would have tried to get some of the statues because <laughs> the statues not only that were in the warehouse but they were all over wizard was so freaking nice were they just like a lot of the bowen stuff all the bowen statues like uh. all the all that stuff they had every one of them yeah because they would send copies or we would buy them for everything and then i will say the cool thing for those of us who ended up leaving on good terms is you would get a really cool going away gift so like i remember when richard ho left he was very close with jim lee i think he'd written all the articles on like the Jim Lee Batman run. So they got Jim Lee to do him a custom piece of, uh, I think it was like him and Batman playing poker or something. Oh, wow. When I left, Scott Collins, who worked on Flash, was one of my favorite artists. And my two favorite characters have always been Flash from DC and Nova from Marvel, two characters who will never interact with each other. And I have it in my office to this day, this beautiful, original Scott Collins piece of Nova and the Flash playing Frisbee, because that's what we always used to do, playing Frisbee, and the Frisbee has a wizard logo on it. So that's far and away the coolest thing I ever got to take away from my wizard tenure. Oh, that is fantastic, man. I'd love to hear that. So, you know, as we close out here, what would you say was really, you know, ultimately the main perk or benefit of being a wizard staffer during your time and, and beyond? Frankly, I mean, I was at Marvel for 10 years after Wizard, and to this day, I continue to have the good fortune of being able to write freelance about comic books, but also I'm a college professor now, and if I have students who are fans, point of fact, a couple weeks ago, Newsarama, who has been around since I was in college or in high school, um, but who I've never worked for, Newsarama is now run by a guy who used to work for me at Marvel, but who I met when I was at Wizard. And he came to me, he said, he goes, you know, you've never in your almost 20 years of doing this, you've never written for Newsarama. Do you want to write for Newsarama? And I was like, yeah, that'd be a cool opportunity. And then he said, what do you want to you write about whatever you want? What do you want to write about? And I said, you know, I would love to talk to Brad Meltzer because he's one of my favorite people in comics. And I met Brad when I was 22 years old at that first Comic-Con in 2004. He had already done Green Arrow. He was getting ready to do Identity Crisis or he was in the middle of doing Identity Crisis. And I basically introduced myself, said, I'm a huge fan. I want to work in comics like this is my dream, blah, blah, blah. And for whatever reason, we connected. And that was 2004. And in the 16 years since... I have always kept in touch with him and we've always connected like every couple years in the sense that like when 
I was at Wizard. I wrote about his Justice League run. When I was at Marvel, he came to New York at one point and wanted to see the Marvel offices. And he, I mean, could have gone through any number of people, but I was the one who set up his tour and we did a podcast. And then after I left Marvel, I, I did an article with him on Marvel.com. And then I want to do this Newsarama thing with him. And I and I dropped an email and I said, hey, man, do you want to do an interview about Justice League? He said, absolutely. And then when I called him up to do the interview, we did the interview. It went really well. And then he goes, by the way, who's this for? He's like, I didn't even care because I saw your name on it. And I was like, wow. I was like, that means a ton. And I tell that story to illustrate that I have dozens, if not even more friendships and relationships within the comic book and even the entertainment world that didn't come from the years I was at Marvel. Literally, it came from those years at Wizard. And when I got to Marvel, and I wouldn't have the Marvel job without Wizard, suddenly I brought with me to Marvel the fact that someone who's starting out, like a new editor or new person on the website, they've got to kind of prove themselves to all of these writers and artists and editors and actors and all these people they're going to deal with. And I had the good fortune of I had already done that because the fact that I had done the years at Wizard gave me a credibility. And also I had just through conventions, through interviews, through articles, I had forged good relationships with all these people. And that carried me through the next decade professionally. And to this day, some of my closest friends are people who I met, some coworkers, but also like I live in Las Vegas now and Todd Nock, who drew Young Justice and 52 and Spider-Man and X-Men is one of like my dearest friends in the world. And him and his wife are two of the nicest people on earth. Like he and his wife are friends with, with me and my wife. They live in California. We lived on the East Coast forever. So we would see them basically at San Diego Comic-Con and I got my wife to come out with me one year or every year at New York Comic-Con they'd come and hang out with us. And it would be like we hadn't missed a beat. Like we'd seen each other the day before. We would just have the best time. Not just talking about comics, just talking about everything. And so I hadn't seen Todd in probably three or four years and he came to Vegas to do the convention here and he brought his wife and he said we want to go out to dinner with you guys we went out to dinner with them and and I literally was just talking to my wife about this today that's like in the three years we've been in Vegas like that was one of our favorite times was just going out with Todd and his wife and again full circle that's a relationship I have because of wizard and some of the most important people in my life are there because of that so what did I get out of working there? Well, I mean, I learned how to write. I learned how to edit. I learned how to come up with with a strategy to cover something. I learned journalism. But most of all, I made friendships and relationships that are important to me to this day. That's cool. Now, I have a question for you. So mm. as a professor, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going for my MFA in creative writing, and I just recently wrote a graphic novel. Oh, wow. Okay. If your students came to you and said, Professor, how do I go about getting my work published mm-hmm. or or getting you know an artist to draw my book and so on and so forth would you recommend them doing like a kickstarter campaign or like what how do they get their name out there well number one it, it's always going to be hard to break into comics it's right. just it's it's so hard it's like playing professional sports like only a few people really like make the cut but i would argue that with social media, with Kickstarter, with all these different platforms, it's probably easier to do now than it's ever been before. Just because if you're a writer, finding an artist, it shouldn't be that difficult. 
I would say my biggest piece of advice, if, if one of my students came to me or if, you know, someone reproached me online, I would just be like, look, here's what you need to do. Number one, this is the advice I was always given by everyone from Joe Casada to Mark Wade to anyone who is an editor or writer who had made something of himself is make the thing yourself. So don't just go to a convention with like, here's a script or here's a sketch. Like if you're a writer, find an artist. If you're an artist, find a writer and make a comic book, like make the thing you want to see. And then whether you go to a convention, whether you submit it online, show that. And this honestly, like not to get too corny, but this applies for any job, not just comics. If you can do the job before you've been hired, there's no reason for them not to hire you. Like if you create an awesome comic and show that you can do it on your own, why would Marvel or DC not want you to do that? I remember the, like the most famous example of that was Sam Humphreys just wanted to be in comics. So I remember he was he was the head of I'm, not everyone remembers this and I'll, I'll, I don't know if this will embarrass him or not, but like uh, Sam, his job was he ran MySpace comics. So when MySpace was a thing, he was in charge of like the comics section. And then at one point, he's just like, I want to be a writer for comics. And rather than I mean, I'm sure like he to some extent leveraged the fact that he had good relationships with people but the thing about sam was he just went out and made a comic he wrote a comic found an artist got it drawn got it published self-published and then went to marvel and said here's this comic i made what do you guys think and they're like it's really good why don't you come write for us and i guess that's the best advice is don't just rely on like i have a really great pitch and if i can get in front of someone at marvel and tell them my great pitch for spider-man they're gonna hire me to write spider-man because that will never happen right but do your story with your own original character and be successful at it. And then they have no choice but to bring you in. Good advice. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and, you know, as we close here, Ben, uh, you know, you talked about all the relationships and the friendships that you have, but there may be one uh, character in the mix at Wizard <laughs> we want to know a little bit more about, you know, the man, the mystery, the big cheese himself. So gear up Seamus, cool or fool? Um, I think the legend in the reality, he's some Somewhere in between. <laughs> I can say personally, I met Garib dozens of times during the few years that I worked for him. And every time he shook my hand very politely and introduced himself to me because he had no idea who I was, <laughs> uh, which is fine. He didn't know everybody who worked for him, but I, he was fine. He was ne he was always very good to me. Look, he signed my check, so I can't complain. But as far as like interactions, yeah, definitely. I, I introduced myself to him dozens of times. And my lasting memory is always just that he always smiled, always shook my hand, and always said, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Garrett <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. All right. Well, Ben, we certainly appreciate all the stories. I mean, honestly, so fantastic. Such insight. We couldn't have asked for a better start to this series. But if people want to find you now and find some of your work or even your past work, what can they do? Probably the easiest thing to do is to follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Ben J. Morse, M-O-R-S-E. And then I'm on Instagram at Ben Reads Comics. And that's where I post all my thought i literally especially since quarantine started i'm mainlining like six comics a day and writing about them so that's kind of how i get myself through the days and then i also have a uh, podcast called the other identity it's a comic book podcast i co-host and you can find that on checkpointxp.com it's a weekly show comes out 
usually if we're doing a good job every Monday. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you all for listening to the first episode of The Wizard Files. We have many more to come, and so many of Ben's co-workers and cohorts over at Wizard have their own stories to tell. So see you next time. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.